So take your Bibles and find your way to Psalm 139. It was read for us this morning. Uh, We have spent um, some time together looking at uh, God's plan and desire for us as a church family, as this new humanity um, of who he has called together um, in his redeemed people, gathered around him in the name of Christ to worship, adore, and enjoy him. And we will return to that theme. Um, uh, But this morning we'll be in Psalm 139. Let me just give you a little bit of a roadmap ahead. Uh, Next Sunday I will be out of town with my family at a wedding in Minnesota. And then the following Sunday we will have uh, Aaron Coffey and his ministry team with us to preach and to serve. And so, uh, Lord willing, um, we'll return to some of the themes we read about Paul writing uh, about the church and who we are as God's people um, and God willing, uh, there in October after we go through these next couple of weeks together. This morning, I'd like for us to look at Psalm 139. And the reason for this is I'd like to encourage us and comfort us with some God-sized truth, some God-centered truth. And so this morning, it's going to be more of like a guided meditation on this, helping us understand what's here in this text, and then trying to draw out some implications, some of the so what. How can this truth be embraced and believed and cherished in my heart this week so that it transforms and changes how I live out the Christian faith in the world around us. I really do want these truths to grab our hearts. And I'm I'm bringing this up because there's a danger that we um, lean into understanding God's word mentally, which is very important. I'm not diminishing that or sidestepping that at all. God gets to our hearts by going through our heads. He tells us to reckon, to understand, to know repeatedly. At the same time, The Word of God must do more than just lodge in our heads. It must warm and grab the affections of our hearts. Because that's where we live out of, right? We live out of our heart. And this is why Christ or God would say that the greatest commandment is to do what? It's to love the Lord your God. And so this morning, I really want for these truths, my prayer is that these truths will encourage us as we take steps of courageous faith together moving forward. And... Um, warm our hearts to all that we have in God, all that he has promised that he is for us in Jesus. So Psalm 139 provides a glimpse into some of what theologians call God's, and here's a big word, ready? Incommunicable attributes. How many syllables is that? Incommunicable attributes. Simply is a theological word to describe the attributes that are uniquely God's and God's alone. We cannot... Um, borrow them. We cannot emulate them. They are unique to God's godness, incommunicable in that sense. Uh, What kind of attributes? Well, the three that are discussed in Psalm 139 is God's omniscience, that he is all-knowing. God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere, always, at all times. And God's omnipotence, he is all-powerful. Those are the three doctrines that you see discussed here in Psalm 139. Now, that sounds very theological, very brainy. And in many ways it is. Volumes have been written about this. Theological volumes have been written about it. And that's good because we must accurately, as best we can, understand from the Scriptures who God says He is, how He describes Himself, how He reveals Himself as an all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God. And I doubt that these truths are new for most of us here in this room this morning. So why are we giving time to this today? Well, I hope that this truth will help us move forward together in courageous faith in our present context. Look at verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 139. 
David says, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them, O God. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So my single aim in this sermon is to help our hearts be overwhelmed and warmed by the wise, powerful presence of God toward us, that we would have a similar response as David had here in Psalm 139. We would have a similar response to some of the other psalms, like for instance, Psalm 28, 7. He says, The Lord is my strength and my shield, and Him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults with my song, I give thanks to Him. We read verses like that and think, well, that's good for that person who wrote that, but friends, that is for us that we would trust God and it's very practical and be helped. Do you need help? Psalm 73, 26 says this, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Does your heart feel like just failing? Does your body feel like it's on the brink of failure? The pressures, concerns of our world, of your life personally, of our life shared as a church family corporately. But God is the strength of my heart in my portion forever. I do desire for God's Word to renew our joy. And our joy will be renewed as we, as we have fresh eyes to see all that God has said He is for us. So, um, I need to say one thing. I'm going to just handle one of the difficult parts of this psalm up front. I had two options. Some, um, here's a pastoral confession. Sometimes God's Word is very difficult to understand and to preach. And we have a section of that in the psalm. So um, one thing I could have done is just not preach it at all, but I don't want to do that. So I want you to look at verses 19 through 22, because this is maybe this kind of jarred you as it was read aloud even this morning. These verses seem a bit troubling at a glance, right? It can feel like an abrupt change, a violent intrusion almost. You have words of hatred. You have how he, he talks about how he, there, there's this, um, he loathes. And these are difficult ideas for our modern sensibilities to try to absorb. Is David right to speak in those terms? Or is he wrong? Well, I think we can look at it this way. It is always right that we should hate evil. That is true. We should never have a sense of celebrating or being sympathetic towards evil. And so in that sense, this is what the spirit of what I believe David is confessing here with God's all-knowing, his ever-presence, his all-power, that those who are, his, are God's enemies, that, there is, that, that, is, that is dreadful. And that is, uh, evil should always be something that we work against, that we never um, concede to. We always want to have that sense of standing against evil. And yet, Psalm 119, we have, we have a fuller revelation through the completion of God's Word, the incarnation of Jesus, his death, his life, his resurrection, that we know that as Christians in this New Testament age, we have a fuller calling that goes beyond in that we've been called by God to pray for, to love, and do good to our enemies at the same time. And so we stand against evil, yes. We also understand that we can simultaneously stand against evil while we also pray for those who do evil, to know and to taste and see of God's goodness like we have in our own hearts. So let's jump back to the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 139. The first three verses are a confession of God's comprehensive knowledge of everything about you. Uh, if you're a note taker, I'm going to try to put this into like three general points and then wrap it up with some implications and conclusions, applications. Uh, simply what we have here in the first part is that God knows everything about you. 
It's easy to say that, but let that sink in. God knows everything about you. He knows everything you do. Well, what do you mean? Well, look at what the text says. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you stand up. (laughs) That's pretty comprehensive. He knows your thoughts. He knows the motives of your heart. Verse 3, he's acquainted with all of your ways. All of them. You can't hide anything from God. God knows, verse 4, what you're going to say even before you say it. This is how comprehensive, this is his omniscience. And sometimes we might think we know someone so well. Have you ever had that? Where you think you know someone so well that you think you can finish each other's sentences? But God goes beyond that. It's not just he's finishing our sentences. He knows the sentence we will say before we even say it. That is how full his knowledge is of us. Not just of our behavior, not, not observing it from a distance, but a full personal knowledge of it. And you see in verse 4, he says it's all together. He knows this all together. It's not that God gets this right some of the time, and he's kind of able to play the lottery of getting it right enough, but God's full knowledge, he, has, he knows it all together. He knows everything you will ever think or say for your entire existence, and he's not discovering it as we think it or as we speak it. He has pre-knowledge of it. How does that make you feel? Knowing how comprehensive, how all-encompassing God's knowledge is of you. Do you start to feel claustrophobic? Do you feel hemmed in by this? Look at verse 5. David did. You hem me in (laughs) behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Like this weight, this this. The, the oppressiveness of this knowledge in some ways, as David is contemplating how comprehensive God's omniscience, his all-knowingness is. He was overwhelmed with this realization. See verse 6? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There's two ways to understand verse 6. One is that it contains David's wonderment and worshipful awe at God's omniscience, which I think is there. But when you put verse 5 and 6 together, I think there's probably a mixture that, that David is overwhelmed in awe of God in, in his knowledge, but at the same time, he might be freaking out a little bit about it too. This is too much for him to grasp. He feels hemmed in by this knowledge of God, of him personally. It isn't, pos- isn't it possible for someone to smother you with their affection and with their love and with their good intentions and with their desire to know what's going on in your life. Maybe teenagers, maybe you have felt that from your parents. Maybe we felt that from from friendships in our life, the smothering sense. And is that what's being presented here in Psalm 139? Is God presented as an infatuated, annoying friend that won't leave you alone? Is David feeling trapped as he meditates on God's majesty in this way? Well, maybe there's part of it there, and I think as we keep going, we'll be able to make more sense of this as we go on. But if we're honest, I think we all react like this ourselves in some ways to God's omniscience of us. I think it is unnerving. It is unsettling. Especially to our American Western minds when we are just kind of inherently reactive to anything restrictive. We like to be and think of ourselves as our own free moral agents we pride ourselves on liberty, on freedom of expression. We have laws that are to protect that. We as Americans expect freedom of choice. We think in terms of inalienable rights. And I'm not saying any of that is evil or wrong in and of itself. I'm just saying that we have certain cultural forces at work in our, 
in our orientation towards these truths about God that might make it difficult for us to really embrace and celebrate as we should. The idea of God's complete knowledge of us might make us feel hemmed in and claustrophobic, but look at what David writes next as we continue on. Look at verse 7. God is always with you. Not just as you know everything about you, but God is always with you. He begins meditating on God's omnipresence. In verse 5, he feels hemmed in. Verse 7, he has nowhere to turn. Verse 8, if he's using these word pictures, if he, were to, if he were to get in a rocket, well, he wouldn't say rocket, but our modern day minds would say, if we were to travel to the stars or go the opposite direction, go as far into the depths of the earth as we could, God's there. Sheol is that idea of the depths of the earth, the grave. If we were buried in the depths of the earth, God's there too. Or, verse 9, if we were to go as far east as we could, or far, as far west, the sea is a reference to the west because the Mediterranean Sea was west of Jerusalem. Whether you go east or west, as far as you can, you can't escape God's presence. He's still there. God is everywhere at all times. Which, by the way, that's, we need to understand that God is not like helium inside of a balloon. That he's kind of filled the balloon. God is not... Like in that sense, God is fully everywhere present at all times. So um, don't think of if you looked at a world map or a map of the galaxies, which um, it's not like God's, if we were personifying or, or anthropomorphizing him, like his, 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 his little finger is somewhere on the, on the galaxy Andromeda and you know his ear is somewhere over on the Atlantic Ocean. I know I'm being silly here, but that, that is not how this works. It's not that God is kind of stretched out and able to get where he needs to quickly. God is fully present everywhere at all times. How does that make you feel? But you cannot escape God. His presence is inescapable. Does that freak you out? Imagine if you had a friend like that. Every time you turn on, you know, you go, walked in the house, turn on the light, oh, there they are. You know, you go, you're waiting for the bus and you turn the corner, oh, there they are again. You would start to become paranoid. Like, am I really seeing them? You're looking over your shoulder. Maybe you're just trying to run and find a little corner you can hide in just to have some relief. Oh, there they are again. We kind of laugh at the absurdity of that. But do you feel like you're living, you know, to read Psalm 139, does it start to make you feel like you're living in some sort of cosmic version of the Truman Show or some sort of like weird voyeuristic reality TV show? Is that what God is producing here? Privacy is important, right? I mean, we sign forms for HIPAA and health protection and privacy. Companies have privacy policies. Websites have privacy policies. When you download an app and you're going to use some service, you can read a privacy policy that shows you and it tells you how they're going to collect your information and use it or sell it or how they're going to use it in, the, in, the, in giving you that service. And we take that seriously. And so in Psalm 139, is Psalm 139 God's privacy policy? And if it is, maybe you're thinking, hmm, I'm not sure I'm going to like install this app because I'm a little unnerved by how comprehensive he is. Do you feel that tension? Hang in there. Because God keeps going, or David keeps meditating here on God's godness. Number three, God made your body and soul. And maybe we should put the word, God's power has made you. That's where he goes next as he continues on in verse 13. David adds, to God's infinite knowledge and to his inescapable presence, he adds this third layer of God's infinite power. 
If you were to describe God's omnipotence, God's all power, how would you describe it? Like, let's say you were teaching a class of second graders about God's omnipotence. We probably would use a different word, right? The second graders. God has infinite power. What would you use to describe God's infinite power? When we think of power, in our context, right, as humans, we often think of, like, the strength to move heavy objects. Or uh, I remember um, stopping on a run for a train to go over some, some tracks. The trail went over the tracks. I remember stopping and waiting, and this train goes by, and it's like, I thought I was back far enough, and I wasn't. I had to back up more because there's this, like, thundering power just rolling by, and we see, like, this locomotive power. Or power in like a, um, in, in like, uh, like politically or in, in influence, power to, to make laws or to influence people or to change the course of world events. We think of power like that. God describes his power through the scriptures here in Psalm 139 as a creative power, a power to create you. Now, we might figure out ways to use winches and leverage and and hydraulics to move heavy objects, but how are you going to make a person to create a soul? Like, our smartest, the smartest of us through world history, we cannot figure that out. We understand the building blocks of life to some degree, but to create something from nothing, that is power. And we're described in verse 13 as God fearfully and wonderfully makes each person. The inward parts in verse 13 is not just talking about like your guts, your heart and your liver and your organs and all the blood vessels going on inside of there. It's talking about the psyche, this immaterial part of you that makes you who you are in the sense of personality. You're not just a body that's animated with life, but you are a person with a personality and a soul and emotions and desires and decisions all wound up in this body and soul, this humanity, this personhood. That is you. And God makes that. That's his power. Verse 16 is full of practical implications, infusing our everyday lives with enormous God-sized purposes and meaning. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, which, by the way, here's a very strong kind of pro-life text. You saw my unformed substance. Well, keep reading. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God has mapped out in his power. He knows all of our days. He knows the full story even before we began to exist and began to live them out. That's power. Like, how would you overcome that type of adversary? We live in the... uh, well, we seem to have been in our entertainment, little snapshot of our world here, in like superhero kind of movie moment of world history. And I don't know, in 30 years, how we'll look back and go, oh, look at that. We were so obsessed as a, as a society with superheroes. But really, just kind of put it in a superhero mentality. Like, how would you overcome an adversary like this? They can create. What are you going to do? Build bigger bombs? They can just create. <laughs> The absurdity of it, right? This is God's unmatched infinite power. God not only was the designer and architect of your physical bodies, our souls, but he's also the designer and architect and he's ordained every day that we would live. 
This is the power, unmatched infinite power that is God's. Okay, so this is what we have here in Psalm 139. You might say, so what? I got the doctrines, yeah, yeah. I'll pass the test, okay. Maybe there's a part of you that's still bothered by this. You feel God's infringing. Right? You, how does God intend for these truths to affect our lives in, in life-giving ways? And so to find the answer to that question, let's push back a little bit. Is Psalm 139 describing the Santa Clausification of God? Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but think about it. Psalm 139, does it really mean that he knows when you're sleeping? He knows when you're awake? He knows when you've been bad or good, so can you finish it? Be good for goodness sake. It's like Psalm 139, kind of this, this religious version of kind of the Santa Clausification of what we have here. No, I don't believe so at all. Let's think about this. What do people do when they stumble into or come in possession of knowledge or power over someone? Well, we have a world that's full of identity theft, right? We have scenarios of personal and private information that is being shared with strangers online, leaks and scandals. Pictures, videos, emails being leaked online, shared with others to discredit or do harm to others or hold people hostage. You've heard of like electronic, I don't know what you call this, where, hey, if you don't send us money, you're, we're going to do this or this to you. And they're trying to, they're using it for damage, for harm. Sadly, when we come into possession of sensitive or comprehensive knowledge about someone, the temptations that strike our human condition, I'm just talking about humanity at, at large, and we're part of that, is the, the temptation could be to use that knowledge for personal gain, for a sense of superiority, for power, for blackmail, for personal advancement, whatever, for just, just wicked glee, whatever. That's not God. That is not God. God uses his power, his knowledge, and his presence for us. And this means that God's knowledge of us isn't primarily investigative. His knowledge of us is because he delights in us. His face shines upon us. And so we are the object of his attention in that sense because we are related to him through Christ. We are his children, his redeemed. His knowledge of us is because he delights in us. He's made us and he loves us. So we are his, his, his possession it's precious. He suffered personally so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. In Matthew 6, Jesus told his listeners these words repeatedly, do not be anxious. Why? Well, Jesus goes on and says, because God knows your needs and he is present and powerful to provide for your needs. You can read it for yourself in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25 and following. Maybe that's a passage that would do your heart some good this week. Or in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Have you ever walked by a penny? Did you leave it there? Jesus goes on and says, Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, from the knowledge of God. God's aware and knows it. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And there's all sorts of jokes about that, right? You know, especially the pastor who doesn't have many hairs talking about that. But friends, they, the point here is God's personal, precious knowledge of you. It's not some distant, aloof, autocratic knowledge. It is a personal, endearing knowledge of you. This is precious. And that's how David described it in verse 17 and 18. You can see it there with your own eyes. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I mean, friends, we forget what we did three days ago. God doesn't. He knows it. 
We don't remember when we lied down, when we sat down, when we were on the couch, when we were in the car, when we moved here, when we moved there. God knows that. That is his disposition of love and interest towards you. Which, by the way, this is precious because we know that God is using all of this for us. God knows everything about us, and think of it, and he completely loves us. He knows not just, the, not just what we're putting out there. He's not just, he not just loves the mask or, the, or the, the image that we display to others around us. But he knows the hundreds of thoughts we had this, this week that we are ashamed of, that we are afraid of. The emotions, the attitudes or the actions that we secretly harbor in our heart and think, man, I'm glad they don't know about this. I'm glad they don't know about that. God knows. And yet at the same time, he completely loves us. And this is, this is what we want most in life, right? We want to be loved. But here's the challenge. To be loved but not known is superficial. Right? For somebody to say, yeah, I love you, but they don't know you, that's superficial. Our hearts crave and, and long for more. At the same time, but the opposite way, to be fully known but not loved, that is the horror of rejection. And our world is trying to solve those dilemmas, these emptiness in, in our hearts. Our world, our counterparts in the world are trying to solve and fill that void, that emptiness, that fear, that panic, that rejection. And yet the Christian gospel speaks into it best because we, we have been fully known by God and fully loved. C.S. Lewis wrote about this dilemma of love in his book, The Four Loves. He said it this way, To love it all is to be vulnerable. I'm quoting here from C.S. Lewis. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Wise words from C.S. Lewis. Friends, Psalm 139 keeps us from going into that coffin. God's knowledge of us, his power and his inescapable presence are not voyeuristic. God is for us. He's not against us. He is for us. Look again at verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Those are words of care, of guidance, of shepherding love. God's ever-present help to guide and lead us is why David considers the wisdom and presence and power of God as something that is precious. The word precious is referring to things like precious gems, rubies and sapphires, emeralds and diamonds. Those things don't grow on trees. We don't have like a diamond orchard. Right? If we did, ladies that are married or engaged, you would not have that on your finger as a, as a symbol, a token of, your, of the value of, of expressed love for you. It takes um, hard work. You have to mine the ground, go underneath, dig, work difficult. It's a, there's a precious, there's a rarity to it. That is how David sums up the knowledge, the presence, and the power of God for us. And you say, well, but how do we know it, it, God is actually for us? The answer to that is Jesus. What David knew in part, we know more fully in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 are some of the most precious uh, words in one of the best chapters in our entire Bible. 
where, where here's what the Apostle Paul says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, in, what way, in which way is God for us? How does he use his knowledge, his presence, and his power for us? Keep reading. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So how is God employing and using his power, his presence, and his, and his knowledge in our lives? He's using it for us, and it's demonstrated through the sacrifice of Jesus. Think about this. Meditate on this. This is, by the way, the message of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, if you're wondering what does it mean to be a Christian, it is not just a religious order. Christianity is this marvelous message of you are so bad, we are so bad, really bad, so bad that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to save us. But yet God delights to save us through the person and the work and the resurrection of Jesus God knows us fully. He sees our sin. He sees our selfishness. He hears our lies. He knows our thoughts, our hatreds, our hypocrisies, our sinful anxieties, our gossip. Keep filling in the blanks of that. And yet at the same time, we are told that Jesus died for us. This sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, unable, right? At the right time, Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God did something dramatically different. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news of Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not come and let's be really good, let's get our lives in order, let's, let's, let's kind of do our very best and then we're going to make it. Christianity is, we can't do that. We're such a mess. It takes nothing short of the Son of God dying for us to save us. When you believe and embrace Jesus as the treasure of your life to be your Lord and Savior, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is why we gather together, why we sing and celebrate these truths. So now, what are we supposed to do with all of this? In our present setting as a church family, I want our hearts to embrace the amazing magnitude of what we have here. God knows us, God is with us, and God's power is at work for us. What kind of work is God doing? Well, I mean, it's infinite, right? God can do 10,000 things with one thing. And we won't know 9,999 of those things. And we're guessing at the one thing, too. But there are some things that we have been given clearly in scriptures about what God is doing, how he is using his power in our lives. And I'm speaking to us now corporately as a church family. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us a glimpse into some of what God is doing. We're told this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what purpose? For this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is how God is using his knowledge, his presence, and his power for us. This is where we are headed together in God's sovereign design, in his plan. 
Colossians 1, 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what God is doing. And friends, as Christians, this is not something that we just kind of manufacture effort and work harder and do more and think better and read more and pray more and meditate more and we're going to do this. And I'm not diminishing the importance of spiritual disciplines at all. But friends, God's knowledge of us is comprehensive and complete. His presence with us is inescapable. His power is infinite and he is accomplishing these things in us. This should give us courage and comfort, hope for the future, hope to keep walking by faith on this tumultuous journey of life. I was reminded of this selection from J.R.R. Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. Near the very end of that book, Frodo is determined to carry on in the quest to destroy the ring on his own. He's determined that he must do this. So he's setting off to do it on his own, but Sam, his friend, will not hear of it. Frodo starts to argue with Sam. And I'm going to quote now from J.R.R. Tolkien. Frodo says to Sam, But I am going to Mordor. I know that well enough, Mr. Frodo. Of course you are. I am coming with you. Now, Sam, said Frodo, don't hinder me. The others will be coming back at any minute. If they catch me here, I shall have to argue and explain, and I shall never have the heart or the chance to get off, but I must go at once. It's the only way. Of course it is, answered Sam, but not alone. I am coming too, or neither of us isn't going. I'll lock holes in all the bolts first. Frodo actually laughed. A sudden warmth and gladness touched his heart. Leave one boat, he said. We'll need it. But you can't come like this without your gear or food or anything. Just hold on a moment and I'll get my stuff, cried Sam eagerly. It's all ready. I thought you should be off today. He rushed to the camping place, fished out his pack from the pile where Frodo had laid it when he emptied the boat of his companion's goods, grabbed a spare blanket and some extra packages of food and ran back. So all my plan is spoilt, said Frodo. It is no good trying to escape you, but I'm glad, Sam. I cannot tell you how glad. Come along. It is plain that we were meant to go together. And that's just a little story. But friends, I hope it captures a little bit of the sense of what we have here in Psalm 139, of what we have written for us in Ephesians and Colossians. Psalm 139 isn't describing Samwise Gamgee. All of us need a Samwise in our life, right? Friends, we have so much more. We have Jesus. We have Jesus who says, Behold, I will be with you to the end of the ages. That's somewhere Sam can't travel. God can. And so all this brings us to the final two verses here. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. These are words of utter transparency and complete trust. You've just signed away all the privacy notices. said, God, you can know it all, see it all. In fact, I want you to understand even more. And look at those verses, 23 and 24. These are words that someone might say to their lover. I want you to fully know me. I, want, I don't want to hide anything from you. I won't keep any secrets from you. I want to be with you forever. I know, I know I just made some of us uncomfortable to think of our relationship with God in such intimate, endearing terms. But friends, I'm not making this up. It's just in the scriptures here. 
It's right here. It's meant for our hope, for our encouragement. This is how radically present, how powerful God is, and how intimate and endearing his knowledge of us, how he's using it for our good. We are fully known and fully loved. And therefore, we can say to God, search me. We can open ourselves up to God and we can invite him to know us more and more. We can confidently look for God's hand to guide us. We're not going to slap his hand away thinking it's, it's a risk. He knows. We can trust him. The darkest of times, remember this was here in verse 12, the darkest of times are not dark to God. Night and day are the same to him and he is with us. He knows us. He acts for us. So church family, as we walk forward in faith through the days and months ahead, our all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God is with us. He is leading us. He is at work. I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our hymn of response. And as they do that, I want you to read a final passage of Scripture for us to hopefully appreciate what we have here in Psalm 139. This is the passage that I am praying for this church family this week. And I would invite you, would you, I, I want to invite you, would you join me in praying for us from this passage? Because we see here the power, the presence, the knowledge of God at work for us. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 16, it reads, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the content of the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Would you join me this week in praying this for us as a church family? To have our eyes enlightened, to know the hope which we have been called, the riches of our inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Friends, the knowledge, the presence, and the power of God is for us. Take heart. Let's pray.